You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for coming to Food From My Friends, a conversation about the importance of food from a POC perspective. Um, before we start the conversation, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land, which I feel honoured to create and grow on. I wish to pay my respect to the First Nations people and their elders past, present and emerging. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My name is Nyanta. Um, I'd like you to introduce you to the wonderful panellist, Nock, who's sitting next to me. Nock is a second-generation Vietnamese chef and cook. Sometimes she slings barmies at shop bar Nock. Inspired by the accumulated knowledge of her kin, cooking allows her to connect to her both lineage and community. Rishani in the middle, who is the founder and editor, she chief of culinary as well as freelance journalist and writer and commissioning editor of food in food at Hardy Grant Books and Matisse who is chef and cook and founder of We Eat Good, a platform for queer First Nations people, black people and people of colour to showcase food and identity. Um, thank you for participating in this conversation today. Um, Thanks for having us. <laughs> Um, as we know, that food doesn't begin and end at the meal. Um, so I wanted to go back to the very beginning and ask you, what is your earliest memory of food? Matisse, you want to take it off? <laughs> <laughs> My earliest memory of food is... I have so many, but I think my Nana's crab curry and like being really, really small, not being able to like break the shells and like sucking on all the shells and like using my fingers and getting really dirty and messy. My mom always cooking, my puppy always cooking. Food is one of my earliest memories, definitely. Very good memories, yeah. Yeah, I'd say likewise. Um, always revolving around family, obviously when you're young. Um, a random, I guess, example would be whenever my family and I would go away on holidays, um, we'd go on road trips throughout um, Australia and I would, we would always go to the parks that had the free-to-use barbecues, you know the ones, um, and I would always watch as, like, the Anglo families pulling out the sausages and, like, you know, chucking them on the barbie and just, like, watching in awe and also jealousy because the beautiful smells that would come out. And then my parents would just unpack these aluminium foil wrapped <laughs> rice packets with curry in there. <laughs> I'd always be like, no. But in like looking back, I'm like, oh man, that's way better. But actually, no, not way better. They both had their place, but it was really delicious. Um, and always just like really nourishing as well. So that was a random food experience I had. <laughs> uh, my earliest memory of food is, was my grandpa. One day she made a pot of congee um, and I was really young I think I was three or four and um, I was eating it was like a hot piping hot bowl of congee um, and obviously it was really hot when I put it in my mouth and she like put the bowl down and she showed me how to eat it and she yeah she was like she grabbed the spoon and she kind of went around the edges to like scoop because that's the coolest bit of um, the congee and yeah now every time I eat congee that memory flashes back to me and I just, yeah, it's like a ritual for me just to scoop on the edges and start and then move in from there as, as the congee cools down. Such sweet memories. Rishani, your memory just reminded me of not my earliest memory, but maybe earliest memory in Australia where I went camping with my family um, and rather than the classic thing of sausages and things on the fire or potato, 
mum had brought a pressure cooker, her spice <laughs> rack, and um, a giant bag of lentils to cook. Um, and obviously with the smell of everything, we had people coming, knocking on our tent, basically being like, can we try some? Like, we're just, we, it just smells so good. So it's pretty beautiful to remember those things. Um, going on from that, um, how did you experience food and how was food shared with you? Um, especially because you're all in the food of fi- field of food, but from very different perspectives. Um, yeah. Shani, do you want to go? On oh, me? Sure. sure. <laughs> so, sorry, just to clarify um, how food, our experiences were with food. Yeah. How did you experience food and how was food shared with you? Yeah. Um, I guess looking back on childhood, it was always in the family unit. And I'm sure this is a shared experience for a lot of um, First Nations, Black and people of colour. Um, it's, it's where we have a shared table and it's not multiple courses. It's shared. Um, so that, that was my experience of food. Um, it would be both my parents in the kitchen and serving food and us all coming together just to enjoy this feast, sometimes three times a day, especially in Sri Lanka. Um, yeah, that was, that was my experience. How about you? Same. Always big tables, full, like long tables full of food. And it was always in abundance. You cook to feel, like you cook and you eat to feel full and not just full from all the food but full with like love and like being with your family I think that really shaped how I do like my food events now big share tables Nyop has cooked at one of them and it was amazing but it definitely shaped how I would I want people to experience food when they're coming to something with with we eating good I think it's very important yeah no shade to like the three course or the 10 course degustation. <laughs> and what's the feedback you generally get when it is more a shared experience rather than, you know, the classic fine dine experience? Well, we call it family style. Like I don't, I don't really call it like a share table. I always call it like a family style kind of feast. And it, the feedback is just everyone is happy and joyous. Um, and I think finding joy in food can be really hard for some people. And to see like community come together and share in abundance is the best thing. And they love it from what I've heard. <laughs> Nock, what about you? Um, food for me is all about connection. And I think, you know, we, we like really share that. Um, and for me, it's also about connection, not just um, during the spectacle of eating. Like, it's, it, like we, fit, we share food as soon as we start to go shopping together, when we start organising, planning recipes together. Um, and it goes, yeah, it's, it's a whole journey from, from sourcing um, local produce to cooking together, to eating together, to cleaning up together. And that entire journey is, yeah, it's all, all about connection and, um, yeah, sharing space together. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And, like, it's not just about the meal itself. There's so much that happens before and after. And I think, Roshani, we've spoken about the way that food is served. So before you even start the meal has a big impact on the meal itself and the political context and history of that. Do you want to talk a little bit about the way that food is served? Yeah, I think um, coming at it from a hospitality, I suppose, viewpoint. Um, the, there's obviously, I could go on about this for days, so I'm trying to figure out where I start this conversation. But um, I think when we look at, for example, a fine diner, like you mentioned before, versus a family meal, um, there's a lot of certain attitudes, I suppose, towards either style of dining, especially in the West. Um, Whereas I think for us, coming from different cultures, the way that we view food is not necessarily, especially when you go to a restaurant, if it's like a mum and dad owned Cantonese restaurant or something, for example, and the food, the service might be different as as opposed to what you get at a fine diner because it's more... they've put all this labour and love into cooking this dish for you and that's where a lot of that service is and where it lies. Um, 
and it's not like you're going to have someone waiting on you the whole time because they're too busy in the kitchen. Um, whereas when you go to a fine diner, it's all about the invisible service and it's about making sure you're waited on and that's why you're paying a lot more money at the end of the day. Um, so, yeah, I guess in answer to your question, yeah, that, that, that's a difference in service, but I don't... I guess the, the thing that we struggle with with our cultures is trying to pitch our foods at a higher price point, which you've spoken a lot about, Nock. Um, maybe you can probably expand on that a bit more, having actually experienced that. It was so smooth. <laughs> I love a transition. Um, yeah, I think... Um, so I opened Shop Bang Up when five years ago. And when I first opened, I... Yeah, I just didn't value my labour because no one else in my lineage valued their labour. Um, and so I just priced myself out um, like really low because I was like, oh, I'm not, my labor isn't worth much. Like uh, our food isn't worth much. And yeah, the more I worked and the more I um, experienced a lot of like microaggressions from like lots of customers, the more I realized, yeah, like my, um, there's so much value to like our food and like, you know, it, like any ethnic, like aunties and uncles, like making food, like it's so much, yeah, so much value to that. And I, yeah, I think the way we price ourselves out and the way people expect us to be really cheap um, is a conversation that I think lots of people are starting to have. Um, and yeah, so. Yeah, which you kind of experienced with your infamous bun me post. Yeah. Um, I was, so that host was actually in response to a lady who was really angry and she came into the restaurant one day and she was like, it, the bun mee then was $10 and she came back in and she stormed in and she threw it on like the table and she was like, um, if I buy a $10 bun mee, I expect $10 worth of pork. And I was like, I was like, do you want... It's just like do you, I was violence. Like, you, yeah, it's just it violence. is. And I was like, do you, do you want, like, I can give you $10 of pork, but I can't give you anything else, you know? Um, and that was in response to that. And, yeah, it kind of took off. And, um, yeah, it was, like, a huge, like, um, learning moment for me as well. It's also, like, what gives her the right or authority to say what $10 worth of pork is. Like, yeah. how is she the authority on yeah. that, you and, know? Yeah, and it's as if, like, $10 of pork is, like, my labour doesn't inc is not included in that. And it's, like... Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's strange dynamics between um especially like ethnic um like restaurant owners or like chefs and like um like white consumers. Yeah. And there's just such a colonial hierarchy to that is there is an expectation that Asian food specifically needs to be cheap and needs to be access accessible in a certain way. Yeah. Um and so how do you think and Matisse, you could be great at answering this, of how do you actually go forward with this and be able to share the food from your own culture without it being undermined um, from a financial perspective as well? I don't sell food in particular, but I think there are a lot of conversations happening now within the food scene and especially the like POC community. It's, it's knowing your worth. And it's kind of blocking out those expectations that we're getting from these white people or customers who expect that something that is not Italian or French or has already has this like higher kind of value. It's blocking all that out and being like, no, if you want to come and enjoy my food, then you have to pay what it's worth. And I think in turn, if we are so firm with it, they will also just learn to accept that because the food is good and the food is worth it and the labor is worth it. And we are worth just as much as any bougie French bistro in the city. I think also like, because we're so aware of like, like how much labor like takes, but we're also really um, like conscious about like accessibility and making sure our spaces and our food is accessible to everyone. Like we have sliding scales, like, yeah. like so many like establishments don't and yeah, it's like so much work for us, but we're like so committed to making sure our food um, and events are accessible. Yeah, which is such a 
beautiful point as well of like, it is about the community. The food itself reflects that as well, that it's to be shared, to be accessible in all factors of it. So no, that's a really good point. Roshani, what do you think about that from a writing and publication perspective, not just the representation of Asian food or food from minorities? I think the biggest issue that we face in food media in Australia is the lack of diversity, and that's where it starts from, and that's where it trickles down from, um, first and foremost. And then if you look at other publications and, you know, the mainstream media, food media publications and the way that they talk about food, I mean, I'm guilty of having worked at one previously, um, but Cheap Eats lists, for example, was one of the first things that I wanted to tackle when I worked at Time Out, um, and just going through those and being like, okay, this is like 98% majority Asian dominated. This is problematic and educating everyone around you as to why, which can be really taxing being the tokenistic POC in any of these environments. Um, and it shouldn't be up to us to have to make that change. However, it has to start somewhere. Um, so yeah, really taking a look at the media landscape, what we're publishing, what gets the clicks and why analysing that and then seeing how you can change the conversation and how you can alter it from within. Um, and I think that's why, and I keep referring to your infamous Bumney post, but that really it sparked a huge conversation in the food media landscape in Nam especially. Um, and I think it's really important for restaurant owners, for people in hospo to speak up and speak, speak out against this as well so that we can kind of come at it together from all sides. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's problematic. And I think giving people a space is what I'm trying to do at Culinary and giving people a space to reclaim their own food, but also letting you know that it's okay to charge what you want to charge and that it has to be fair. And in order for a business to be sustainable, sustainability isn't just, you know, nose to tail eating. It is running a business sustainably, making sure people are paid properly, making sure your labour is actually covered properly and the cost of produce is also covered as well, which is an issue that's hospitality-wide. We've seen what's happened with Noma. We've seen how they've turned around and said, oh, we can't run this. It's not financially sustainable. Yeah, because you've had to start paying your 70 interns and you've realised you can't just do that anymore. Um, so it's, it's really good because it's opened up a wider conversation to hospitality. Um, but when it comes to diversity and people of colour, I think, yeah, it's just time that we start charging fair prices um, and knowing what our worth is. And that, sorry, just to harp on, but that conversation isn't just for Anglo people, it's also for our own communities. Because so many people in our own communities feel that they can't do that and they can't charge that and it's ridiculous and they will criticise a $10 bun me. But it's about educating them as well. I think those, like, cheap listicles where it's, like, best best bun me to find and I think they really pitched a lot of um, yeah a lot of small businesses against each other um, and they're like how do we be the best like how do we out um, yeah outplay other businesses where it's it, it should just be like you you serve your community you know you serve you serve this amount of people and you know there's value in all of us sharing space there's enough resources for us to share this space yeah exactly and that's another issue that the the cheap eats, you know, the lower price point venues often don't get the attention either. It's very rare that they will. And if it is, often it's, it's meant to be clickbait. That's how it works. So it's like, oh, this place is doing $2 sandwiches. Quick, go. And then, like, you'll have heaps of people going and then complaining as soon as you raise your prices again. So, yeah. Um, all these things are so important but also so tiring that takes so much energy to get to that point. And Nock, I know you were saying the other day that you just want to rest. You just want to rest. I just want to, like, no more girl bossing. Just get a lay down. <laughs> Only. Um, how are you going to approach that? And how, how do you actually find the balance between giving the energy you have to ba giving yourself that energy equally? Um, I think... Uh, since I've closed, like, running the... Like, since I stopped doing the restaurant full-time, um, like, now we kind of just open when we feel like it. Um, and we do lots of catering. I have been engaging in lots of just rest with my friends, like... Um, and rest with my friends includes just coming together, cooking together slowly. Um, yeah, learning to embody slow work um, and slow cooking. Um, yeah, that's one of the ways I've been, like, resting um, and just, like, 
prioritizing myself so that I can like keep um, cooking for community and keep um, doing the things that I do because yeah, it is a lot of work, but yeah, I, I think it's a really important work, so that's why I keep doing it. But um, just reminding myself to do things at a slower pace. Yeah. Matisse and Roshani, is that something you've battled with yet? Rest is hard. <laughs> but, yeah, like what you said, you need to rest in order to keep going. Um, I remember when I first started We Eating Good, and I was constantly making these recipe videos to share to people. I lost my love for cooking. I didn't cook for months because it, it, it didn't bring me joy anymore because I was only doing it for a certain amount of time to create content. And that was really hard, that was really sad because food was my, it brought me the biggest joy. And then taking that break really rejuvenated me and really like brought my love back to food and back to cooking and back to sharing. And then doing all the pop-ups last year and all of those events, we did like four pop-ups in a month of queer chefs. Nyop was one of them again. And it was so hard, but it was so worth it. So like we're gonna keep going, but we're not gonna do it. <laughs> four in a row, we're gonna spread it out because I think it's, it's really important to be, like you said, the work is so important and we wanna keep doing it, but you can't do it at your own detriment because it's not gonna help anyone. And I think prioritizing rest, and for me it was prioritizing cooking and eating again for joy and for wellness and for feeling good and doing it with my friends and family and for community and not doing it because I needed to film it and edit a video, like, ugh, that was awful. <laughs> turning, in, turning your hobbies into jobs is a, yeah. is a heavy one. Yops talked to me about that a lot, <laughs> and I listened. Yeah, you've got to um, set boundaries. It's definitely something I'm trying to do more of in this year. I say that every year, but, you know, this is my year, to set boundaries. 2023 is carrying through boundaries. Yeah, yes, that's exactly it, carrying through those boundaries. And I think... Um, what we've got to be conscious of as well is, you know, we're doing different things but in the same space and with the same goal in mind. And as people that are kind of championing that, almost pioneering it in a way, it's really important that we don't lose sight of that and don't burn out so that we can't continue to do that because we're trying to create safe spaces, not just for ourselves, but wider communities that haven't had that space before. Especially culinary, which is from memories of one of the only POC um, food publications. Yeah, so we were Australia's first. Yeah. So how do you plan to balance that out so you don't burn out, but also you are able to share your labour as well? Yeah. Um, yes, I've got some colleagues from Hardy Grant over there, so I have to be... <laughs> oh, no, no, they're great. Um, I think I just got to be really mindful of my time, um, which is something I've certainly been struggling with, um, and just... You know, I work full time at Hardy Grant and then I do culinary on the side. Um, and it's, it's a lot, <laughs> it's a lot. So yeah, I, I just am trying to set boundaries for myself in taking care of myself, you know, actually going for walks twice a day, you know, setting boundaries with people saying, you know, if, if something's stressing me out in a work context, I can't, I can't commit to that. I can't take that on because I need to prioritize myself so that I have enough energy for culinary. Um, yeah, that's kind of, where I'm at with that. <laughs> and I guess a big part of cooking and any sort of collaborative process is sharing that labour, um, which I think at times gets undermined in hospitality specifically. Um, Naka, I know we spoke a bit about how to share the labour of cleaning up and washing up. Um, and for both of you, I don't think I've spoken to you about it, but we were talking about how that is just as important. Um, and then I guess an example of that would be for example, we're quite a communal house um, and we do cooking together but also cleaning up together. And to make that just as equally beautiful, we've got a little thing like our Spotify podcast called Dish Bish, which we can listen to while we do the dishes because there is value in that. So how do you incorporate those kind of less fun tasks into your practice? I think cleaning... 
for so long, cleaning was like this chore. Like I, when I host dinner parties, I'll just tell my friends to come eat and then I'll be like, oh, leave. Like I'll, I'll, I'll do the cleaning, you know? Um, and I think I really see that in the way we run restaurants as well. Like it's a very transactional, people pay money and then they're like, okay, I get the food and that's it. Like because they've paid money, it's it's as if they don't have to look after their, their like immediate space. Um, but I think the, it's really important to like share labor and see cleaning as just part of part of eating. You know, eating doesn't exist in a vacuum. It it ex exists in a like a, a larger. Uh, I don't know the word for it, but it's yeah. Cleaning is part of eating. It's like an ecosystem. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just as um, like cooking, organizing recipes um, is like is just as important. And yeah, like I have been just. One of the things that my friends have been doing like in the last year is when they come and hang out the shop, um, they would stay with me until the end, until we finish cleaning, close the roller door, and then they leave, which I think is so beautiful because before that, I'd just be like, um, I'd just be like, no, go home, and I'll do all the cleaning, and I'd stay till like 3, 4 a.m. So it's um, really special. Like, it means a lot. Do you think that's partially a cultural thing as well? Like, and I can... Uh, not really. I've been thinking about this since our conversation because um, growing up when we have family gatherings and stuff, my mum was always like, go help them clean. Like cleaning was such a collective effort. Um, yeah, so I think it, yeah, I think cleaning has always been ingrained in us as like a very, it's, it's, I find when I'm at parties or something, cleaning is where I bond most with the people. Like you kind of like have your own space and time and if you just met the person, like you really connect with them. Um, yeah, so we should all clean more. <laughs> <laughs> what about you two? How do you approach post-eating tasks? I just started working in the hospo side of food um, late last year. And I had no idea what went into it. And I remember I did a pop-up with my friend Trinity. She did a soul food pop-up, so like a lot of flour and like cheese and pasta, like everything was just stuck on everything. And it was my first, and I was working with my partner who was a chef and she was helping us. She was like, hey, we gotta clean now. And I'm on my hands and knees, like scrubbing the floor and scrubbing everything. And I was like, wow, like I had no idea what goes into cleaning. And now I love it. I love to like get my bucket and my soap and like scrub the bench. And when I was doing my pop-ups, everyone was helping out in the kitchen. My best friend, Tanika, who's here, was doing the dishes and like helping us out during service. And I, it's also acknowledging like when I remember when we did the pop-up with you, I think I was the, the final one and I was burnt out beyond anything you can imagine because I hadn't listened to Nyop and rested. And I remember like sitting on the floor and like taking a second and not being like, go home. Like you need to go home. And I was like, no, I wanna help. I wanna help clean up, I wanna help. And she was like, no, no. And it's acknowledging that when we're all together, doing these things together and helping each other out, there are times when as a community, we can give each other that respite. But yeah, I had no idea the what cleaning a kitchen looked like. And it's really satisfying and I love to do it now. <laughs> it's so fun. Hot now? No, not my favorite. <laughs> but it's very, it's, it's after you've been cooking all day, it's, it's like you're wiping it off and you're starting afresh. And like a, a good chef is a clean chef. Yeah. <laughs> Shani, how do you approach that within taking the time to write and publish all the beautiful work you have. Do you share the end labour of sharing your articles and recipes with people? Is that a shared labour for you or do you take that on yourself? I do it all. <laughs> I do it all, but I've just, I've got five volunteers now that are helping me with commissioning and writing and stuff, which is amazing. Um, and the, the plan is to change that so we've got more help and we can start paying people and yeah, monetizing culinary is a whole other beast. But I guess just going back to, um, going back to cleaning, um, I find really interesting is a lot of, 
like I've worked in hospo before. Um, that was my first job, was in hospo. I was a barista at 14 years and nine months on uh, $6 an hour. It was amazing. I was at McDonald's. Oh my God, love that for us. <laughs> um, I think I burnt so many people's coffee, but anyway. Um, yeah, so I know the, the value of cleaning and, and the value of kitchen hands, which is a huge thing that is overseen in Australia especially. Um, you know, what we've seen with the, the skilled staff shortages and, and staff shortages in general, when the pandemic occurred, um, all the international students were sent back and they made up a huge amount of kitchen hands. And underpaid, overworked is are two words that come to mind. Um, and so what we've seen is, and it, it's still happening to this day, like Kylie Kwong's restaurant apparently in Sydney, she was struggling to find a kitchen hand, so she had to start using compostable plates. Um, it's something we're seeing across the industry that people, no one wants to be kitchen hand. Um, but then the other side is we saw kitchen hands, um, wages going up like crazy, which is great. So I guess... One thing I'm really intrigued by, and maybe you guys would want to chime, on, chime in on this, but like in terms of sustainability, when we have people coming back from overseas and they're kind of forced into that lower like, income role of being a kitchen hand, is it still going to be sustainable for them? And is this still a sustainable way for us to dine and whatnot? And even looking at the way that we dine now, it's like it should be seen as more of a luxury than it is. Like. Yeah. So I'm writing an article at the moment for Gourmet Traveller and it kind of touches on this, but when you look at when a tradie comes to your house, I don't know if you've had a tradie come to your house, but when they do, they give you a receipt and it's, it outlines the cost of their labour, what the labour was, the cost of goods and all of that stuff. So it's really clear as to what it is you're paying for. But then when you go to a restaurant, what are you paying for? You, you, all you see is the, the list of drinks and food that you've had um, and the GST in Australia. And none of the rent, the overheads, you know, any of that is listed in there. So how, without any transparency, are we going to know what we're paying for and how is it going to be justified to pay more? That's, that's kind of what I'm looking at at the moment, I think really interesting. We need to see dining out as more of a luxury. People shouldn't just be breaking even and burning out and closing their restaurants. It's just not sustainable. So I just went on a huge tangent with that conversation, sorry. <laughs> So do you think the, to move forward, the best thing is to lay out and outline the labour that comes with it before and after a meal? It's, I think that is one way around it. It's but like an I, internal thing. I think going yeah. into a restaurant and internally knowing that you're yeah. dining in someone's restaurant who they have to work very hard for. I don't think yeah. it should be completely up to the owner. no to have to spell it out for you. Exactly. I think that we should be doing that internal work. Exactly. It's up to the customer now, up to all of us here, to start educating ourselves, if we haven't already, on what goes into running a restaurant and why you're paying that much. And also, tip. And if you can't afford to eat at a restaurant, if you can't afford to tip, look, I totally understand where we're coming from as well in terms of accessibility and how... Sorry to swear, but shit, that is. Um, but... It's also we've got to start looking at, okay, this is a wider conversation for hospitality and for diners to start looking at it and being like, if we can't be affording to eat out, how, how are we going to change things around so it's sustainable, not just for the diner, but for the staff? And within that as well, another thing that I know all of you have mentioned in one way or another is who has the right or authority to share and profit from food that isn't of their own background. How do you highlight that? Because, you know, we all want to share food um, and share things that we've grown up with, but how do we do that in an ethical manner? I remember going to a talk and listening to Jess Ho talk about this and sharing the same opinion. I think if that culture isn't your own, but you love it and you appreciate it so much that you just must make profit from it, fund it. Fund it and get the right people who know that culture deep down. They know everything. They have grown up with it. They understand it. They have the skill set for it. If that's something that you want to do and you want to share another culture that you really love, I think you should put it in the hands of the people from that culture and give them the space to do that. Because I, I don't think it's very ethical 
to to do that. Like I don't, yeah, I don't feel comfortable going to restaurants that are owned by Anglo people and the food on the table is a fusion of like all of these different Asian cuisines because they've gone on a holiday and now they're like really inspired. It just doesn't. I want to bring a piece of Vietnam back to (laughs) to Nam. (laughs) I think it's also like a power thing going, I totally agree with what you said. I think it's also a power thing in looking at Western cultures, I suppose, and where they're at and how we're still fighting a different fight, right? We're still fighting to be heard, to be seen and to reclaim our spaces. They've had that opportunity. They had that from day dot. We haven't, you know? And that's why it's problematic for someone else to take ownership of our cultures when we've still got that power play. And it's also... It's frustrating because uh, a restaurant that's owned by a Westerner that has all the money to market it properly and make the space really beautiful and, like, visibly pleasing is regarded, is so much higher regarded than a restaurant that is owned by someone from that culture and has a humble space, but the food is authentic and it's made with love and knowledge. It's very frustrating to see how people would prefer to go to somewhere that just looks nicer or has like the media's tick of approval than a restaurant that's been there for 20 years and the food would be better. Sorry. And people expect the, you know, the places that are owned by, like, ethnic aunties and uncles um, to be cheap, to be, you know, exactly. like, when people um, come up to me and they're like, oh, I only go to Vietnamese restaurants that are authentic, so, like, they're really, like, shabby-looking or, like, dirty-looking. And I'm just, it, like, it's it's so strange. And, it, um, and so when they go to restaurants that are owned by second-generation Vietnamese people who are just trying to, trying to get out of the box, you know, trying to do different things. They're like, oh, that's not authentic. People say that I'm not authentic all the time. And I'm just like, well, I guess my experiences here aren't, you know, aren't valid. And, but then they'll go to like Vietnamese, um, white-owned Vietnamese restaurants and spend like $30 on like a bowl of fur. And I'm like, what? Which is interesting because you've also spoken about the importance of incorporating native ingredients into your cooking, but that doesn't come at a cheap cost. No. So how do you satisfy that authentic yeah. need, but also embrace and appreciate the place you're living in as yeah. well, equally? Yeah, definitely. I think for 2023, one of the things I really want to focus on is exploring what Budmi could be um, like here, like on um, Wurundjeri country where, you know, where, like, uninvited guests. But me, like, you know, pickled carrots, coriander, spring onion. In Vietnam, they grow abundantly. Like, here, it, I think we kind of have to think about what's accessible. All these produce isn't accessible um, all the time. Um, there's different seasons here. Um, and just exploring what it means to be here and what our food in the diaspora can look like um, away from our homeland. Yeah. I think like that is such an important point. I also think like going back to the term authenticity and how rife that is and how we need to steer away from that word and if you're referring to something that's more traditional then say traditional. Um, but authenticity pigeonholes people like us into just doing what our heritage allows us to do and it doesn't let like, I was talking to this cookbook author, he's like a James Beard award-winning author, Nick Sharma, yesterday, and how people constantly go to him and ask him for recommendations on Indian food when that is not what he's, he's trying to get a veer away from that. He sometimes draws upon Indian ingredients in his food, but his whole thing is he's a molecular biologist who's now a chef, and that's what his specialty is. But if he was Italian, he probably wouldn't face that issue. And this is the issue we face even in cookbook publishing, where if, you, if you're a, an Anglo person and you want to make a cookbook on Indian food, which we've seen happen multiple times, I'm not going to throw names out there, but you know who you are. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, that's allowed. But if, it's, if it was me, for example, a Sri Lankan person wanting to do a book on Italian food, they'd be like, what's her experience? Like, have you, are you part Italian? Like, and it's, it's problematic. Which, it's also like... 
chefs are artists. I consider food an art form. And chefs are, should be able to experiment and do, especially chefs of colour, they don't, like, pigeonholing them into only being able to cook that kind of food just, just doesn't allow them to experiment and create the food or art that they want to. Yeah, it's, it's, it's authenticity is basically seen through the white gaze. That's all it is. Can I say something? So whenever people go to Vietnam, they always ask me where to go in Vietnam as if I know, like I grew up here, so I'm like, yeah. Um, but people are always like, what do you, where do you go? Like, what's your favorite place in Vietnam to eat? And I think they're always expecting some street food stall, like um, with really quote unquote authentic food. But I always say four peas pizza. Um, and it's like an Italian Japanese pizza restaurant in Vietnam who's um and they make their own cheeses in-house and they 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 play with so much vietnamese cuisine um they put it on pizza and it's it's just like a culinary experience and the way we orientalize like a lot of um our like um like our communities and stuff like yeah puts us in these boxes and it doesn't give us space to explore outside of that uh, which i think is really important because um yeah, like how do we grow from there and how do we evolve? Like food is always evolving. Um, yeah. yeah. That's exactly, and then you see the flip side is like the fetishization yeah. of it and appropriation and you see yeah. like really tacky venues out there that have really bad names um, as well and they're often oh my God. Yeah. racist names. Yes. Yeah. Miss me. I said it. <laughs> it's like, what? What well, is Do you remember this? that place in Richmond that... Um, yeah, the one we shut down. They their theme was Vietnam War theme. Oh, I remember that. Can you explain that to people that don't know? Because it's it was yeah, that was the tea bar. back then. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. was yeah that yeah. was that was. I juicy. remember I got a um, press release at Time Out, and it was um, by a PR agency I really like. Um, but they sent this yeah press release, and it was like. Come to Rickshaw Bar. There are bullets strewn throughout the venue, and there are bullets in the beer. And like, <laughs> and we've got like an Asian orange color theme code going. And it was just, I just read it, and I was like, what the hell? And I sent it to Knock immediately. I was like, is this like really fucking problematic? Sorry, yeah, we cancelled them. We don't believe in cancel <laughs> culture, but no. we cancelled them. They, well, we. So what happened was we gave the PR agency the opportunity and warned them and said, we're telling you this is wrong. Now, what are you going to do? And then they're like, we're going to chat to them and we're going to have a change within the week. Gave them a few weeks, nothing changed. Knock was on it. <laughs> wow. We shut them down in 24 hours. Really? Yeah. Amazing. It just went viral somehow. Yeah, it went like across the world. <laughs> because it was like, it's, it, it's it like not okay. It was Their um, Instagram was just full of like pictures like from the wall, like, like, yeah. like helicopters, helicopters and, and all sorts and of awful black it and just, white photos. It just shocks me because it's like, do you not have anyone in your life that yeah. clocked that? It was like, also, maybe that's not the best idea. Yeah. And no. it was in Richmond, which is like yeah. so many Vietnamese um, migrant communi communities living there. And it would have been so triggering for them to see that. Like, you know. So. And they had no Vietnamese representation in the team. Yeah. It was white owned with a Thai chef. Says we enough. Also going, uh, one question back, kind of puts a, bad look on fusion where fusion itself doesn't need to be bad but it's given such bad reputation now um do you think there's a way around that as well like this or maybe not this this didn't, didn't sound like it had any hope but can you think of other places there is place to combine cultures in a respectful manner i think if the two cultures are involved then it's respectful I, I see nothing. I see nothing wrong with fusion. If it's too like what you and Rio did, that was you guys did a Viet. You did like a Viet curry adobo. It was insane. That fusion is beautiful. Like marrying two cuisines together is a beautiful thing. If you have strength. both can, of their consent to do that, but if you're a, a white person. Being like, mm, I really loved that thing I ate in Vietnam, but I also really like that thing I ate in China. Let's just put it together. You're not consulting anyone. You're just doing that. And it's, it's, yeah, it's about consultation. It's about making sure that everyone's on the same page. It's meant to be a beautiful thing of sharing. That's 
Fusion's beautiful. But, you know, in a respectful way. Yeah, it's also like fusion is also a result of migration and we see it across the country, of course, and the world. Um, but I totally agree, it doesn't need to be a dirty word. Or, and I think that's, and that's right, you've got to have ownership over it in some form. Um, like we see, for example, I've got a friend who's a Sri Lankan chef and he's combining French technique with Sri Lankan food and it's really cool. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but when you see the example that Matisse just referenced before, like that can be seen as problematic. So yeah, case by case basis. Vietnamese food is just fusion. You know, it's lots of influence from French and Chinese colonialism. And it's, it's true. Yeah, like we wouldn't have bun mi if it wasn't yeah. for fusion. Yeah. Same with Mauritian food. There's so many different cultures, like Nagesh. Nagesh is Indo-Mauritian. I'm Afro-Mauritian. Yeah, it's, there's so many, and it's because of like colonization that we have our cuisines. Same with, like the Philippines was colonized, I think three times. And through that, they have created one of the, such an amazing array of foods. And it's also interesting, it's also unique. And it all comes from fusion. And that fusion is resistance as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, also with fusion, there's the aesthetic side as well, which you touched on briefly before, of food from minority backgrounds being ugly. Um, but I think, Matisse, we were talking about this, and there is beauty to a big pot of whatever it may be compared to like a tiny, tiny meal, which I think you said, not to quote you, but doesn't fulfill um. you. <laughs> um, do you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah, we were talking, because we were talking about, you know, what the answer just said. But it was like, when I see a big pot of curry or a big pot of stew, I think that's beautiful. There's the oils that are all coming together, like the richness of the reds and the herbs, they're green. It's, it's, I think it's visually stunning. And I don't think it's any less beautiful than, you know, a little mouthful on a plate with like some foam and like microgreens. Like that is beautiful in its own way and I'm not taking away from that at all. But I think, yeah, I think that, that judgment and that view that our food is not as beautiful is really harmful yeah and also like who gets to access that kind of fine dining cooking like I'm at culinary school at the moment and when we first started we were learning all these different cuts like they've named all their cuts like brunoise like chiffon and it's like who has time for this like you like French cuisine only has time because they colonized so many places and took so many resources from over that they can just sit down and name cuts you know, like we just we're just trying to cut to eat stuff. Yeah, and yeah, it's and okay. also who defines that? Like, who's defining this beauty within food? Because, as you said, your definition is very different to maybe what you're learning at culinary school. So, mm. I mean, we are living in a colonized country, unfortunately. I think that would be that it might is. be it. Uh, might play a part, but yeah, you know, the French system. It's what is. A, Observed across the world. Look at the Michelin Guide. Um, you know, world's 50 best. They're all according to, well, yeah, Michelin Guide itself, French technique. Um, they're seen as the pioneers. And so that's what now we're finally having that conversation in 2023 and onwards that that isn't the height of cuisine. You know, we've got to start recognizing technique across the world. So that's it. That's a good note to end on. <laughs> um, almost, well... I keep going. <laughs> We're here all night. I've got one more question before we ask questions from the audience. Um, a simple one of what is the next meal you're excited to share? Lunch with these two. We're going to have lunch. <laughs> but we don't know where to go. We're like beauties and we don't know where to go. <laughs> Anyone has recommendations? Maybe you can ask the audience for recommendations. Yes, please. Thank you so much. That was a very beautiful conversation. Does anyone else have any questions? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Oh. Yeah. Um, has you opening when you want to, when you have capacity, how has that affected business, if it has? Um, it means I've had to take a pay cut and I am okay with that because that means that I get to look after, if I can take a pay cut to look after my mental health and my relationships, I would do that a hundred times. Um, it, yeah, I, I'm in a, in a transitional phase at the shop where I think it's a really important space to have um, and it really transcends like being a space, a restaurant space. I think it's, it's, a, I think it's a third home for a lot of people a lot of my friends go there if they're not feeling safe at home, if they need to do therapy, if they just need to be with someone. Um, so I think there is a lot of importance in having that space. Um, but I do have to have other jobs to fund my own life kind of thing. So the, the restaurant, when I open for catering and open for when I feel like um, it kind of pays for itself. And yeah, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't have it any other way. Some of the best food experiences I've had in my life have been at the shop. It's it, the pig. The suckling pig it's was a highlight of my life. She was there. I have a video of you screaming, watching, looking at the pig. It was, yeah. yeah. It was just, yeah. yeah, I was, yeah. It's, it's just such a, it's such a beautiful space, like a, a space that everyone in the community can access um, whenever there's like um, a mutual aid crisis or a fundraiser that needs to happen. Like everyone mobilizes and organizes and knows that they can just access the shop whenever. And I think having that, um, yeah, having that available to access is really important. And just not just that, just like having, you know, we have events there where we just come together, just like, Kutupok just come together and we share space and we hold space for each other and I think that's really we've met some of the best people there yeah. it's great but also thank you for creating that space for everyone like that is obviously you need to rest but until then it seems like you've worked really hard to provide that space for people and that's pretty incredible and one of the only places that I can think of that provides such love and such good food um, love you <laughs> Any other questions? Cool, we might leave it there. We've got Zupa Dupas to say thank you for coming on such a hot day. Um, thank you again for the three of you for participating. That was really, really lovely. Thank you for having, you for having us. us. And thanks everyone for coming. Thank you, for thank coming. you everyone for coming. <laughs>